Hello, and welcome to the Dog Hack. A podcast series where we interview dog professionals. So today we're joined by Adam from Adam Bailey Rescues and Rehomes. Hi Adam. Hiya. How are you today? I'm good, thank you. How are you? I'm great, thank you, yeah. Have we been out for our dog walk already? Um, I sort of do things a little bit differently than most owners because my dogs come to work with me every day. Um, right. So, so they get a good run around a three-acre paddock in the morning. Nice. So that's a great dog walk, isn't it? Three acres yeah. is huge, right? I, I'm not sure about acreage, but that sounds it, big. It sounds big, but when you actually look at it, it's not as big as what you might think. It's like a park size? Yeah, roughly about that. So you, your dogs go to work with you. How many dogs do you have? You, that was plural, um, right? Yeah, I've got four at the moment, one being a foster dog and three of my own. Three of your own, one foster. And uh, are they uh, specific breeds? Do you have... Um, I've got, at the moment, my my own dogs. I've got a, a Boxer Cross, a Staffy Cross and a Spaniel. And my foster dog is a Sharpe Cross Staffy. Wow. So you've got a... Let me digest that. You've got a Boxer Cross... A spaniel, yep. A Sharpe cross, which is the foster, yep. And what was the other one? And a Staffy cross. And a Staffy cross. They're all very high energy breeds. Yep, they're certainly very nutty. Are they? <laughs> How do you manage with that? Um, I sort of think it's quite normal. A lot of a lot of people don't cope with four bouncy dogs, but I've become slightly used to it. And I guess if they're going to work with you each day, that's quite enriching for them. They get a lot of exposure and a lot of they get tired. Yeah, and they get to meet lots of different animals and other dogs and lots of things to mentally drain them, which is better than physical exercise. Yes, yeah, or or as important. Yeah, absolutely. And, And so the animals that they meet the rescue and rehome center is that just dogs or is there more than dogs at the center um we literally take in everything and anything um we're a foster based rescue so all of our dogs are in foster care but any new dogs coming in come to the actual sanctuary um to be assessed first before going out into foster and then at the sanctuary we've got poultry equine um farm animals and small pet and caged birds wow how does that work with the keeping them separate? Because I, I imagine a lot of the rescues are, have quite high prey drives. Are they um, all right with the cats the, and the birds and the? Yeah, most most of them cope quite well. We, we've got secure fencing, um, and I mean the, the farm animals free range as best as you can, um, and then the dogs are in a completely separate area, but they're not kept on site. We use the site to just assess them with other animals, people. Um, because it's a neutral territory. Right. And then they go straight off to the foster? Yeah. Normally with one of my more experienced foster homes um, who has the ability to separate or do whatever he's doing. So before we get into... Because I think I'm going to find that really interesting, but before we get into the detail of that, um, do you want to talk us through how you came to be running a a rescue and rehome centre? Yep. Um, It was five just over five years ago now um i was fostering for uh, another rescue and there was a dog that i was personally asked to help um and the rescue center couldn't help that dog at the time 
um, uh, and the dog was very close to being put to sleep so I um, started the rescue in order to be able to help that one dog and then it's just slightly escalated from there. So you what, you had some land there already or you, you had a big garden or whatever and you were able to take I, that I dog just, on? I was just a normal person. I, I recently had some compa- compensation from a car accident and the dog needed expensive surgery. Right. So I used that money to help that one dog and then kept getting uh, asked to help more different animals. Uh, who reached out with you with the first dog then? Was that a, another charity? Um, the dog was in a council pound and due to be put to sleep um, and over social media I'd, I'd heard of the dog and wanted to help the dog. Ah, right, okay. And so then you had the first dog and you, you fostered it? Yep. So she came to me on foster and um, she had the surgery which was a false hip replacement and she's doing amazing now. She's now nearly nearly six years old. And is is that is that dog being adopted by somebody else? Yeah, she's been adopted by a lady who's volunteered for the rescue from near the start. Right. Um, and she, yeah, she's a fantastic home, and she's fostered other dogs for me, and she's wonderful. And it's a big leap to having a full-on rescue centre for all these different animals from this one dog that you sort of looked after with the surgery. So, what was the how how did that progress? Um, the first two years, we predominantly helped dogs and cats, um, built up a reputation locally for helping animals, and the more people hear of you, the more people ask for your help. Um, working with pounds and police forces and various different organisations in order to help as many dogs as we could collectively. Yeah. Um, and then I got asked to help help a 11-month-old horse, um, and we managed to accommodate that horse. Wow. And then, yeah, it just it's grown from there. Then the horse horse needed a companion, um, so we rescued another horse, and now we have nine horses in our care: an alpaca, three sheep, two goats, um, around 150 poultry, roughly 50 Cajun Avery birds, and rabbits and guinea pigs. Wow, that is. So when you said at the start, I was just an ordinary guy and I just had seen this thing on social media and I'd, I went and helped this dog, I'm assuming in the interviewing period there you've had to rent land or, or yeah, buy something bigger? Yeah, we're, we're currently renting land and we hope to purchase in the near future. Um, but same as most foster-based rescues, everyone has the dream of buying a nice big country home and having dogs running everywhere, but it's not as plain and simple as that and there's a lot of red tape involved, but... We're getting there slowly but surely, and we hope, hopefully next year, we'll be able to rent a much larger premises so that we can have our own kennels, which is one of our biggest expenses. Jeez. When it's it's, it's gone from the one dog and, and now the you know alpacas and horses and all sorts of stuff, who is it who's reaching out to you and asking for your help to house these animals? Um, sometimes it's local authorities, um, council pounds, vets, um, dog wardens. Um, we work closely with a couple of p- police forces and help them when dogs are seized from abusive situations. And the dogs come into our foster care while there's an ongoing um, criminal prosecution going on. Right. Um, and then sometimes it's owners, um, sometimes it's breeders. 
Um, it's a real collective of different people and predominantly com- com- contacting us via um, social media or via the website. And would it be organisations like the RSPCA and, and other rescue centres, would they potentially reach out to you as well? Um, yes, at times I, I, I will work alongside other organisations because sometimes they can't accommodate all of a certain type of animal that they're trying to rescue. Yeah. Um, we, we tend not to work quite so much with some of the larger ones because they have a, a big network themselves. Um, but there's a, a lot of small rescue centres um, that predominantly are just... They're almost like one-man bands. There's a couple of people that have got together that want to make a difference and some help 20 animals a year, some help 200. Right. Um so we sort of network together to be able to help more rather than it's just pooling resources basically right and did it start off as a is this like a full time thing for you do you do this all day every day yeah it's seven days a week um, making sure that all the I, I predominantly do the animal care at the sanctuary um, so it is, it's seven days a week making sure everything's met all the needs of the horses and the other farm animals, making sure everyone's let out in the morning, shut away at night fed, watered and the general cleaning and things And how do you then build your network of people where where you're fostering out the animals to? It's predominantly Facebook and we do have a a website that gets a lot of hits Um, but social media is a huge fantastic tool Um, to network out to different people and find other people that are interested in helping the same way you are. Yes. Okay. And when, when you first started doing this, when it was, when it was the one dog with the, with the vet's bills and you said you'd, you'd had, uh, you'd come into some money and you were able to do that. Were you working in a different job at that time? Have you had to give up a career in something else in order to do this? Yeah, I was a full-time care assistant at the time, um, earning a comfortable living. Nice three-bedroom house. <laughs> and now it's still just animal mad. It's all just animal mad. And ha- how long was it before, so between that, that first dog and needing to give up your full-time job? Um, about two and a half years. Um, my manager within the home wasn't very supportive and would be, would have preferred me to work more hours within the job than use my spare time to do what I love. Right. Um, so I decided to step down f- from the career because employees need to be valued. Yes. And you were able to do that, um, I-, I assume, as it's, you're a registered charity, is that right? Um, not as yet. We are um, currently toying with the process because it's a very complicated process and you've got a lot of criteria to meet. Um, so it's in for, it's we're, we're at the stage now where we're just ensuring that the there's a consistent enough team um, to be able to meet all the criteria so that once we've got charity status we don't lose it because right. it's hard to obtain but easy to lose. It's a, it's a double whammy, hard to obtain, yeah. easy to lose. Um, so you're working on getting the charitable status at the moment, but I, I would assume some part of what you're doing there is enabling you to subsist? There, There is an ability for you to pay your bills, or is it hand-to-mouth? Um, it is, I mean, what, the fundraising for the rescue is completely separate from me personally. Obviously, okay. I, I do my own, um, I do um, agency work to earn my own money, and I've just right. learned to live on not a lot. 
So it's a full-time job doing the rescue, but you don't get yeah. paid for it. You also have to work outside of that as well in order to keep everything ab- yeah. afloat. It's impressive. It must be tiring. Um, it is, but you you experience a different level. Like it's almost like like to like say like a teenager, they'd be like, "Oh, getting out of bed, that's hard work." <laughs> but when you're constantly on the go, stopping's exhausting. If you just keep going, then you're fine. You're fine. And then you've got the four dogs to walk as well every day. Yeah. But like you say, you've got the three acres and, and they come to work. They meet all the animals. That's quite yeah. quite tiring for them. Did the dogs that you've got, the four dogs, did, uh, have they all come from rescue situations themselves? Yeah, they're all rescues. Um, my oldest, Phoebe, she the, she's the box across. Um, I rescued her when I was 18. And um, she... She's just fantastic. She's nutty, and she's uh, she's a bit. I, I I personally prefer dogs with issues. Um, I think they deserve a chance more than some of the easier dogs that are guaranteed to find a home. Yeah. Um, and she first came to me. She was reactive with cats, reactive with dogs, and reactive with children. And she's so much more happier now, and she's got balance in her life and consistency. And yeah, she's a wonderful dog. I, I imagine it was. It's been difficult to do some of the training stuff with them. So, did did you have any kind of formal instruction on dog training, or is, is, did it just come naturally? Um, it has kind of come as a bit of a natural gift. Um, I do seek advice from people, especially if it's a particular breed, because some some breed have a, a like Sharpays, for example, have their own traits that are really distinct. And if you're not experienced with the breed, it, you can actually do more damage than good. Right. Um, so I did seek advice from people that were really experienced with the breed. Oh, so speaking about Sharpays, and what kind of things would that be? Um, they're very protective and guarding. They tend to be one-person dogs. Um, they don't always socialise well with other dogs because they've got a lot of wrinkles. Other dogs can't read their body language, so they're prone to being in dog fights. Uh, misunderstood um, yeah so um, you've had to adapt your training to meet yeah, the just specific that, needs yeah I just realised that not all of it is his issues sometimes it's another dog's issues and everything just needs to be at a slower pace to make him comfortable and happy in a situation ok and you, you've mentioned that you'd had Phoebe since uh, you were 18 it, so f- does Phoebe predate the initial dog that you rescued and, and did the surgery with she does, yeah. And how did that work, having the two... Because if, especially if you've got reactive dogs, it must be difficult if you're fostering to make sure that the new reactive one isn't... Um, it's just about really safe, sensible introductions, using muzzles as a, as a tool, not a punishment. Um, if you need to use a crate for separation or a stair gate, they're not negative tools if they're being used positively. Right. And that, that's yeah. worked for you so far, has it? Yeah. I mean, uh, Phoebe's now at the stage and has been for quite a few years where a quick walk around the block and she'll be fine with any dog. Um, but initially she was an absolute nightmare. She couldn't even smell another dog without wanting to, to go in for the kill. Blimey. And do you know what that was there something... Do you always know the histories of the dogs when you're fostering or, or rescuing them? It's normally very rare because they come from situations where they've either been seized because of an abusive past. So you get 
an image of what they've been through in that situation, but they could have been rehomed ten times before then, or you never get the full picture, um, particularly like if the dogs are coming from the stray dog pound, um, you get no history at all. They've been there seven days. Um, you don't even know what type of owner they had previously, whether they're good with children, cats, dogs, you don't know anything, and you've got to take that chance, assess them, and give them, hopefully, a better future. So you so you mentioned about the assessments before, about the, they come to you for the assessment, and then you don't house them there, they go straight off to the foster home. Yeah. Um, can you talk us through what a typical assessment looks like? Um. It, it varies from dog to dog again so if we get our own owner hand in we do take the information as a base starting point from the owner so whether they've lived with cats then we we could say that they should be sensible with a dog savvy cat so a cat that won't run the minute it sees a dog um and it's just sensible introductions reading the body language of the dog um, putting the dog in potential situations where it might feel uncomfortable um, to see if it has a a breaking point. You don't push the dog too far because you don't want the dog to snap or do something negative. Yeah. But it's about if if, if you're going to try and trust a dog as best you can with children, you need to know that it can cope with the things that children do. Okay. But I'm assuming you wouldn't use children in that assessment so do you no. do you have to like mimic what a child might yeah, so do me personally myself i would like squidge a dog's face or comb my fingers through the the hair on the dog's ears or place my hand on on the tail firmly so that the dog can feel that it's definitely there and just see if there's any reactive points um most dogs are absolutely fine they don't mind it at all um but you you have to be really careful. I mean, society now, it's, it is no win, no fee. If I place a dog somewhere and it did something, somebody will turn around and sue me. So I've got to be 100% comfortable that the dog is happy. Yeah. And are you ever scared while you're doing that? I have a distinct lack of fear when it comes to dogs. Right. Um, it's. I think that's what helps them best, and sometimes it actually gives a false reaction because... I don't have the fear and other people are nervous. Sometimes that the dog will pick up on the nervousness of the person and yeah. then the dog will react because of that. Um, so it does, it can with me personally create a false impression because I don't have the fear with the dogs because we work together. We don't work as master owner or me being the pack leader. Uh, you have to have a relationship with the dog. You, you don't rule over it. Okay, so a distinct lack of fear, even though you you potentially dealing with a, you know, a dog that's had quite a traumatic past, and you're testing it to see if it's it's going to react by smushing its face. I, I mean, I I think I would I would have the fear. I'll be honest, I would definitely have a fear of doing that. It, it, it's not for everybody. <laughs> no, no, I think you're very brave. Um, and in terms of the the fosterers. The people mm-hmm. who, who foster that you find. How, how do you build that base of people who are willing to take on what are potentially troublesome animals? I mean, normally when a foster carer first volunteers, it's via um, Facebook or via a website. Um, and to start off with, we make sure that they have a really easy dog. Um, a dog that 
won't be reactive in any situation, no guarding problems, so that we can gauge the level of what they're able to do. Um, and as they progress as foster carers and become more experienced, because, I mean, dogs get dumped for a reason. Yeah. Um, they're, they're not always dumped, well, very rarely dumped because they're perfect. It could be separation anxiety, it could be lead reactive, it could be guarding the food bowl, um, a dog may potentially have bitten in the past. Um, and you have to be confident that your foster carer is capable of dealing with that. Um, so if you've got somebody that's home all the time and doesn't leave and even gets their food delivered, well, that, that foster home's ideal for a dog with separation anxiety. Right. Because they can slowly work by sort of leaving the dog in the house and popping out into the garden for five minutes to build up the time that the dog's not with somebody so the dog can overcome its fear of being left, knowing that somebody will always return. So it's not just assessing the dog, it's assessing the fosters as well and their their situation, their home life. Yeah. And you said there that people tend to progress um, from taking some of the simpler cases into potentially taking some of the more challenging ones yeah as as people develop the experience with different behaviors um then they certain foster carers shine in certain areas like some will be good with dogs that are just very nervous um some will be good with little dogs that are snappy some will be good with big dogs that don't like other dogs um so you learn what the foster carer does best at and you place the correct dog with the foster carer yeah i guess that's quite a quite a talent to be able to spot this the, the matches who's going which dogs are going to match well with which foster carers it, it it takes a long time to learn but coming from a caring background you're dealing with people all the time you're constantly assessing people's ability yeah um so it's almost like second nature and what what sort of numbers are we talking about with the fosters do you need to maintain like a database with who can do what or do you personally know each and every one and what they're capable of um, I personally know each one. Um, obviously, foster carers sometimes are with us for six months. Sometimes I've got foster carers that have been with me since the start. Um, so I know each one personally and know what they're capable of. Um, if a new foster carer joins the team, um, then I like to meet the person, communicate with the person, just to get a gauge of what I feel they, they could be capable with. Um, and, and nothing challenging is placed there until I feel comfortable. That they're, that they're going to be able to do the right thing. Yeah. Okay. And I'm assuming that you grew up with a love of dogs, given the amount of effort that you've put into rescuing and rehoming them. Did you have dogs as a child? Yeah, I, I grew up in a great family. with We always had pets, everything from rabbits, guinea pigs, birds, um, dogs, cats. We've always had a lot of dogs in the family from my parents to my grandparents um so they've always been there as second nature really and do you are there any particular dogs from your childhood that you remember with a a particular fondness yeah we had um bobby he was a springer spaniel and he's just a fantastic dog great all-rounder he he had his quirks but he certainly wasn't any trouble and it's one of those dogs that if you could just clone that dog and have him for the rest of your life, you'd love to. Really? Mm. And was that your parents' dog? Yeah. Or grandparents? Parents. Um, 
so you got your first dog when you were 18. That was the yeah. first one that that was your, you know, you owned. And that was Phoebe the Boxer Cross. Yeah, she, um, she came from a, another rescue centre in Dorset. Um, I didn't initially go with the intention of rescuing a dog. I'd saved money and, and was looking at puppies and everything, but I wanted the right dog and she just, she fitted the bill. Right, okay, so you'd gone... You were going to have a look at some puppies in Dorset? I'd, I'd looked, yeah, I'd looked at all sorts of different breeds. Um, I've always liked bigger dogs, so I was potentially thinking Great Dane or St. Bernard. Um, then I was looking at um, bull breeds, um, like the English Bulldog, French Bulldog. Um, then I saw a white box there on the Rescues website um, that had had a stroke, and there was something about the dog that I fell in love with. Um, sadly, that dog passed away two days before I went down to VA. Oh, no. Um But they said, if you're interested, we do have another box across, um, if you want to come and meet her. And I was like, well, I'm not 100% sure that it's the right dog, but I'll come down and meet her and fell in love in the same day. Really? And she came home. Yeah. And so did you take her back the same day? Yeah, the exact same day. We did everything. There and then. And what draws, so you were talking then about big dogs and in particular the the bully breeds, what draws you to those kinds of breeds, do you think? I'm um, just more comfortable in their presence. I tend to get bitten more by little dogs. <laughs> <laughs> little man syndrome. Uh, it definitely is. <laughs> yeah. Um, you've now got four dogs, which is still Phoebe, still going strong. Yeah. Um, Another spaniel like you had when you were a child, and obviously the Sharpe and the Staffy. Is there any other breeds that you've looked at, um, you know, that somebody else has owned or that's come through the rescue that you think, you know, one day I'd really like to have one of those come and come and live with me? I think that's a fantastic breed. I'm I'm still slightly obsessed with the giant dogs. Um, I've helped quite a bit with dogs from Romania, so meteoric shepherds and Caucasian shepherds are fantastic. I, I've not heard of those breeds. Meteoric shepherds and, and Caucasian, Caucasian shepherds. shepherds. Yeah, that. I mean, that they're really not a dog that anyone should rush out to buy. Um, right. They're highly strung. They've got a huge guarding instinct. Um, generally don't cope well in a home environment. Um... They're, they're better as yard dogs, really. That's right. what they're bred for out in Romania and Bosnia and, and Russia. Um, they are huge, the size of a St. Bernard. So the average, sort of 60, 70 kilos plus. And yeah. they're not easy for people to handle if you don't know what you're doing. Okay. Um, so they're from Bosnia, Romania and Russia mainly, you said? Predominantly, yeah, because um, they're, they're bred to protect the flocks up on the mountainside. Oh, yeah, I'm just Googling them now. Yeah, they are massive. Yeah, they're, like they're huge. A, a cross between a Leon Burger and a Tibetan Mastiff. Yeah. Almost. Wow. So they're flock dogs, and they've, yeah, not ideal. You wouldn't encourage anybody to go out and get one. I definitely wouldn't. There's no. a lot of breeds that are rehomed in the UK that should never be put into a pet situation. No. What other breeds do you come across that you would also recommend aren't necessarily great pets? Uh, that are great, great, Yeah, that, that wouldn't make a great pet generally, but you um, see people getting them. 
Akitas, Belgian Malinois. Um, there, there's a lot. Even Sanka Simple is a French Bulldog. People think they're gorgeous, lovely family dogs. Um, but because of their health problems, they generally develop a lot of behavioural problems. Um, and that is one of the biggest problems, really. People don't look at everything as as they don't look at as to whether they can meet the dog's needs and um, they just look at the image and think well that's very cute i'd like that yes yeah i've noticed that there's a lot of people that tend to go on the the looks of the dog rather than the personality yeah i've just googled the muriatic shepherd as well and that is like an old english sheep dog yeah looks wise they, they, they look just like a border collie um on steroids <laughs> okay um, we ask everybody who comes onto the podcast that if they were Prime Minister um, if there's one dog related thing that they would make mandatory do you have something that you would do Would you, if you were given the top job um, I think everyone should have to go for almost like a car theory test and then allocated the type of breeds that would be suitable to their lifestyle um, that way you'd avoid a lot of dogs being dumped because they didn't realise they'd be quite so high energy or you'd have the right dogs in the right situation. Yeah, that's and interesting. Then... We've, we've had people say the car theory test one before, but from a from the perspective of that they can demonstrate they know enough about dogs to take proper care of them, but you've took it a step further and said you you'd want them to answer questions about their lifestyle so that you can match the right breed or the right type of dog to the person getting the dog as well. Yeah, I mean, you get a lot of, like, single mothers that go out and buy a £150 border collie puppy just because it's in their budget and they can afford it. Yeah. But there is very few single mothers with three, four children that want to go on a five-mile walk every single day. Yeah. In the rain, in the snow, and the, the needs of the dog are then neglected. The dog bites, the dog ends up in a foster home. Yeah. If if it's lucky, if there's space. And obviously, worst case scenario, possibly the even dog, worse. Yeah, the dog could end up being put to sleep through no fault of its own, other than somebody who thought it was cute when it was a puppy and thought nothing more of it. Hmm. <laughs> Oh, there they go in the background. <laughs> Who's that barking in yes. the background? Which one? That was Phoebe, my old girl. That's Phoebe, is it? And is there one thing, um, if you were in the same job as Prime Minister, is there one thing that you'd outlaw? Um, definitely retractable dog leads. Um, they're extremely dangerous for both the dog walker and the dog, and they don't really serve a purpose. It's just... They're a bit of a lazy tool. Right. What what is it that makes them dangerous? They're, they're made of really thin nylon cord, and there's even been extreme cases. I, I believe a couple of years ago with a greyhound that actually ran with one, reached the end of the cord, and the dog stopped bolt, and it's actually broke the dog's neck. Wow, that must have been something to do with the collar as well, I assume, because they they yeah, make the specific collar. collars, don't they, for greyhounds? Yeah. Um, wow, so they're just not ideal. A, you can use um, like horse lunge lines and things like that, and long lines if you've got a dog that isn't good on recall. 
they're so much safer. You've got control of how long a length the dog has. Um, the mechanism can break in the retractable ones, and they're just—they're really not ideal. It's not saying I'd feel safe with a dog at the end. No, so we just ban the sale of those completely. It would be absolutely ideal. <laughs> okay, so uh, just moving on then. If um, somebody was wanting to get in to either the fostering or they wanted to do what you've done and, and set up some kind of rescue and rehome centre, um, linking fosterers or helping out with the council, what sort of advice would you give to anybody listening who wanted to follow that kind of career path? My best advice would be to always volunteer for an existing organisation. There's so many struggling rescues out there because there isn't enough volunteers. And with social media and things like that, it's easy to criticise what people aren't able to do. But you can step up and make a difference and make them able to do it. Okay. So the the key message would be go and volunteer for your local yeah, rescue. Yeah, there's... There's rescues all over the country. Nearly every town will have a rescue within five miles. And is there anything, because I'm assuming just like anything else, there are good rescues and there are potentially rescues or or rehomes where um, things aren't run as, as well as they should be. So is there anything in particular people should look out for when they're wanting to volunteer, if they're a complete novice that should ring alarm bells or that should... Um, you know that they'd be looking at thinking yeah that's definitely a good one if they see this kind of thing going on it's i would i would say transparency if they're willing to show you where the dogs are show you where the animals are um show you accounts and things like that then they obviously haven't got anything to hide um people that run rescue centers we're human just as much as the next person so yes we will make mistakes we will upset some people so don't always listen to tittle-tattle on social media or he says, she says. Find out for yourself, go and visit, and everyone knows how animals should be kept, so if you don't think they're being kept that way, then avoid them or help them. Okay, so transparency is kind of the, the key thing there, um, and go and investigate for yourself. Don't yeah. Don't listen to online chit-chat. Have you had any instances of that with your rescue in the past, of people sort of uh, criticising or...? Yeah, um, we've rehomed over 3,000 animals now, and so that's potentially 3,000 adopters. I know a lot of them, some people have come back for a second dog, or some people adopted 10 chickens at once, so it's not exactly 3,000 adopters. But if I'd done everything perfectly with every single adopter, I'd be superhuman. Yes. And... I've upset some people and sometimes you have to have a, a firm stance and people don't like it when they're told their version is not being accepted. Right. But um, it doesn't seem to yeah. have done you any, any harm as a, as a rescue. Things, things are going well. It, I mean, 3,000 animals is, is insane, isn't it? That's a lot of animals to have, have helped. Yeah, it's an insane figure. I mean, I mean, at the time that people were slating us on social media and things other people listen donations drop and then more animals are affected but we're we're run on a really tight budget so what comes in is what gets spent on saving lives so yeah. less money less lives saved yeah so it could the, the that sort of chit chat on, on social media can have a big impact on you 
it can have a huge impact. It can literally between be the difference between an animal being saved instantly or an animal being put to sleep. Wow. Like literally life and death. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's quite a dour note to end it on. Um, how can, to cheer things up before we sign off, how, how can people help? What can they do to help? Um, just get involved. Lots of sharing. If you see an animal in need, definitely share it. Tag rescues. Um, if you if not on social media and you're just online, there's loads of websites you can contact for help. Um, you can contact via our website online, um, which is adambaileyrndr.co.uk. Um, if we can't help directly, we'll point you in the right direction. Local vets are a good source of information. Um, just be involved. Make make a small difference, whether it's every day or, or each week. Um, together we can all actually make a much bigger impact than if we just think, oh, somebody else will do it. Somebody else will do it. So if people want to get a hold of you there, you've you've already said about the website in terms of yep. social media, Facebook, Instagram and stuff, what's the handle? Yeah, we're we're on Instagram and we're on um Facebook. Um the Facebook page is manned seven days a week, so you can message at any time, day or night, and somebody will get back to you as quick as possible. Um yeah, we're here to help other people. Don't don't sit back, don't struggle. We're all we're all in it together. Fantastic. Much more positive note to end on. Thank you very much, Adam, for joining us today. It's not a problem at all. And we'll speak to you soon. That's great. Thanks very much. Thanks.